We're going to pray now. We're going to ask God that he would really speak to our hearts. So bow with me and let's pray. Father, to talk to you almost demands a pause. It's the time to think that we're actually speaking to the one that created us from nothing. The very one who sustains the life that we live and who directs the steps that we take. Amazing. You're the same God that loves to speak to your people and to speak to their hearts. You love to find those who really want you and to let them meet you. So I pray today, I don't know what backgrounds we come from, what kind of needs and issues, but I pray that we'd have a sense that we heard from you, that your voice dug into the heart and kind of tweaks us in a way to bring us to the cross and allow us to either come to know you or to love you more. We ask you to grant this for your honor and for our blessing. And we pray in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to begin with a question this morning for you just to do a little evaluation of self. No raise of hand, no outward demonstration of, of, of your answer, all right? Here it is. If you had to describe your zeal, your passion, your faithfulness, obedience, I don't know what you want to call it, but you get the idea toward taking what you hear God saying, whether you like it or don't like it, whether you understand it or don't, when you see God saying, this is what I want of you, when you hear Jesus in his teaching saying, this is what is right, follow, how would you describe that following of yours? If you had to rate it between a 1 and a 10, would it fall in the category of 1 through 3, kind of low on the scale? Would you be somewhere in the middle, four, five, or six? Would you maybe be moving toward the, the higher side, seven, eight, nine, ten? Where would you be? Now, some of us would, would honestly be answering, ah, probably in the middle. Four, five, six, I don't know, somewhere kind of in the middle. If that be the case, this message is particularly for you. It's for everybody. But I shouldn't say the message because I'm just teaching the text. The text is for you, very importantly for you. You'll see what we're talking about. I'll tell you right now, I know we've got new people every week here. This is not a feel-good text. When you want, you know, heart's down, you feel a little, uh, you know, where do you want to go? You don't want to go to this text. You might should go to this text, but you won't want to. As much so as last week was a feel-good text. I'll tell you pastors, all of us are the same. We love when we get to the text that's a feel-good text. I could watch last week. The meter just went like this. It went way over. Responses, comments, notes. I mean, I could tell. Very encouraging. It was an epistle, we're in Revelations 2 and 3 at this juncture, if you're new with us, and we were in the sixth of seven epistles that Jesus is writing to various churches in what would be today Turkey, 
representing the church of all ages and all times. There was not one word of criticism. Everything that was said in the entire text was encouragement. Yes, 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 go, 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 way to go, proud of you. And, and we could all relate to some degree to that, and it, it felt, yeah, that's encouraging. By the way, the danger is the pastors who say, that's all I'll preach. Because I like the positive responses. And so I'll just always be an encouraging, you know, help me type of message. But there's some really good stuff that God has to say to us that's not such a feel-good. Happens to be this message to the Laodiceans, there's not one positive thing said. In fact, it's all rebuke. It's all coming saying, no, stop where you're going. So we follow what we find here. It's important stuff. This church of Laodicea, is what I'm going to call the most desperate condition of all conditions. There's not a worse place to be in life than where we're going to see described today. Very important to know that. The condition that's the most desperate of all is called lukewarm complacency. The most desperate condition of all. Now, I've got a question for you that, uh, that I'm going to ask, and... The answer I'm going to give at the end of the message, maybe the answer is given in the teaching of the text. I hope it will be. Here's what I really want. I want you to answer honestly. Don't answer, oh, this is what I hope the answer is. No need to do that. Just answer, this is what I think I see Jesus saying, because Jesus is the author of this. I mean, he literally, the person of the Trinity that's talking in this text. So, when you read what he says, you hear answered, do you think he's talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Who is this term lukewarm being used to describe? And really, I just want to know, what do you think? So listen carefully. See if you can answer what you think. By the way, people are going to differ on the answer to that question. Doesn't mean I'm right. I just like to know what you think, all right? So, let me say a word about Laodicea before we read the text. Uh, the city, unlike for you that were here last week, Philadelphia, was a city with great opportunity. If you remember, uh, Philadelphia had no opportunity. It was, oh, it was a hard place to live. Interestingly, no criticisms. Hmm. Come to Laodicea, oh boy, they had it all. Wealthy as could be. I mean very wealthy. Three highways converge right at this point called Laodicea, and it, it just brought about a lot of wealth. In fact, it was known for about four things. Number one, it was known as a banking and financial center. A lot of money there, and so banking was big. Number two, it was known for its sheep raising and a particular type of wool that those sheep produced that was made into garments and it was known as a garment district. It was very, very prosperous in garment sales. Number three, it was known by the fact that it had a medical center. And the medical center would take local mud that was existed there with something that was in the mud. They figured out through this medical school that you could take that mud and turn it into powder. And as you turn it into powder, you could place it upon the eyes and it would actually make one's sight better by using this medicinal mud, whatever it was. And so it was known for its med school, particularly in the eye, arena of the eyesight. 
Uh, number four, it was known for its, its uh, springs. They had hot springs that came from about six miles, what would be for us miles, uh, from a little community called um, uh, Hierapolis. And these hot springs would deliver water to this city of Laodicea. There were also springs that brought water in that was cold water as well. It was interesting, though, that as these would come together and come into the community, the water would be lukewarm. The water had a chemical in it that made it very bad to taste. You, you just ooh, could hardly stand the taste of it. And so Jesus is going to say, as I talk to you people of Laodicea, I, I'm going to talk to you in terminology you'll, you'll relate to because you know what I'm talking about. So we have to have that background or we don't really understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Now, every single text, the seven teachings to the seven churches all began with a self-description of Jesus. Very interesting. He says something about himself to reveal him to us, and what he says to us is going to relate to the particular community he's writing to. For instance, let's look at verse 14. I'm not going to read the whole text together for time's sake and number two because I'm going to read this in sequence, unlike last week. So let's just take it one verse at a time. I'm going to begin with verse 14, and this is the self-description. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. This is how he introduced himself. First, the amen. You know what that means? The word is literally truly or verily. How many times have you heard Jesus when Jesus would be teaching and he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, or your translation may say, truly, truly. You know what he's saying? The word actually is talking about being accurate, being truthful, being trustworthy. He's saying, listen to what I'm about to say now because this is extremely important. You can bank on it. It's truth. That's what he's saying. So this is a personification of that word when he says, I am the amen. Then he comes secondly, and he's saying almost the same thing. He describes it in a different way when he says, I am also the faithful and true one. Faithful and true. Now, in verse 18, we'll come to it in a few minutes. In verse 18, he's going to say, I'm going to counsel you folks in Laodicea. Listen to what I'm saying. And so he's relating, saying, you can because I am faithful. I am true. I am the amen. Then you come to the third description. He says, the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, don't think that he was a part of the creation. He is the creator. The triune God has different functions, each person of the triune Godhead. Interesting, both Father and Son are involved in creation. John 1.3 says, nothing has been created that was created outside of what Jesus has brought into being. Hmm. The reason he's saying that is because as he describes this most desperate condition of all, what he's going to be saying is this, you have got to have a new creation in your life. I am the one can create you anew. Listen to what I say. Okay? Now we're going to take the text from this point on, outside the last verse, which is repeated every time in every single of some of the epistles. 
And what I'm going to do is just give you four statements that summarize the teaching to make a very challenging passage, hopefully, a little bit more understandable. So let me read it, and then uh, and we'll comment on it from there. Number one, Jesus gets nauseous when encountering lukewarm complacency. Now, I used the word nauseous there because we find him saying, I will spit you out. Let me read verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold, strikes us a little odd, or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now here's the idea of that water. Hot waters, they understood that. Cold waters, lukewarm when it gets there. Chemical taste, ugh, makes you sick. Spit it out. I don't want anything to do with this water. Don't want to drink it. Now, what he's saying here is that you people are not hot, and the word is boiling, and you're not cold. And as a result, I use the word nauseous here because what do you do when you feel you, you spit it out, right? Well, I think of that as a physical sickness. I'm nauseous. But if you look it up in the English dictionary, you know what nauseous means? It means extreme disgust, loathing, repugnant. I think that's what he's saying here. This stuff is not tasty. I've got to spit you out. What is so amazing? He says, I would rather you be cold and lukewarm. Do you and I think that way? Don't we think like this? Man, bad to be cold. Better to be warm. Best to be hot. And he says, no, no, no. Worse is to be over here and to say, lukewarm. Better to be cold. Obviously best to be hot. He has a different value system than we have. These people assumed they were fine. Well, what's the problem? No, you know, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Things are okay. He said, no, 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 I will spew you out of my mouth, spit you out of my mouth. That means I want nothing to do with what I'm tasting. Number one. Number two. Lukewarm complacency is a result of being deceived by one's own self-righteousness, enhanced by the deceitfulness of prosperity. Well, you want a formula for disaster, here it is. Let us have a good life, moral life, religious life, and best yet, Christian as my religion. Let me let that make me a fairly good person. Let me think of myself as I see me in that condition and therefore see myself as righteousness because of what I've done to make me good in following my Christianity and my religion. And then add a little bit of prosperity, whether it means financial wealth or otherwise, great abilities, just become absolutely, you know, just better off than most. And the next thing you do, you say, huh, well, I really am God's. I really do kind of stick with him, and I like his ways. Now, granted, 
I don't want God to interfere with certain areas of my life. And this was the condition of the church. I really want you apart, but don't mess with my pleasure. Because when I've got something I want to do, I don't care what your word says. I know what it says about the first day of the week. I know what it says about sexuality. I know what it says about my, but don't mess with my pleasure. That's the one thing I don't want you to touch. Don't ask me to do something I don't want to do. And the other thing, don't get into my business affairs. That's something, I mean, I have to do what i got to do, so don't get into that. But otherwise, absolutely. And because there's so much otherwise in life, and then we see the prosperity, what's the conclusion? I have favor with God. God really cares, and he's taking care of me because I'm his and I'm doing well. And he says, be careful. That is truly a formula for destruction. Number three, verse 18, we see the prescription for curing lukewarm complacency is the purchase of a unique type of gold, garments, and eye salve. They understand these three terms. This is how he says it in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. And we need to understand these. First, the, uh, uh, the words he begins with, I advise you. He could have said, I demand of you. It shows the, the graciousness that Jesus is taking in dealing with an obstinate people here. But he says, buy from me. I'm not going to comment on that till just a few minutes when we end. But notice he's saying there are three things you need to buy from me. And he's saying the same thing three different ways. And he's using the terminology they would greatly appreciate and understand. He says, number one, he says, gold refined by fire. Gold that makes you rich. He says, in order that you may be rich. You need to buy gold from me. Well, what is it that makes us rich? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 talks about the grace of God, of Jesus who would have been rich in the heavenlies, who becomes poor for our sake, morally poor, because he takes on our sin, in order that we, it says, might become rich. This is the very idea he's carrying here. He's talking about the salvation that makes you rich. Buy from me salvation. Don't, don't make it on your own terms. you got to come to me for it. I'll give it to you. Buy it from me. Number two, he talks about white garments. White always represents purity, righteousness, and he says, you, you folks are all talking about garments and all the industry that you're involved in and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to be naked. You need to have good clothes. And you have clothing, but you got it wrong. You got all the nicest of the clothing, but you're not clothed with my righteousness. You need my white robes or my white garments. That's the only thing that's going to have you be okay because you'll be naked otherwise. Morally, you're naked. And there's going to be shame and disgust in that. You don't want to be in that condition. Now, let me tell you something that many pastors will, will tell you. 
I'm not the only one. But I've had a repeated dream 30, 40, 50 times through the years. I don't know, maybe more. I don't know how many times. Now, as I tell you what my dream is, you're going to say, he had some real childhood problems. He's, you know, got some very, you know, big issues. And you're probably right. But it's happening to other pastors elsewhere because we tell our stories. Of, well, what are your dreams? And they, oh, I have that same dream too all the time. I wonder why. I don't know. Here's the dream. I get up to preach. I get up to do a wedding. I get up before a public audience. And as I look down, I notice I don't have any pants on. I wake up in this sweat. It's, it's the worst feeling. I think, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, how did I get up there without pants on? And what do you do? I'm started now. I mean, I, oh, no. They know. They've, oh, no. It's a terrible feeling. Let me tell you, if you think that's a terrible feeling, can you imagine stepping in front of a holy God and you look at him, and all of a sudden, you realize you're naked, morally naked. You're ashamed. The guilt, it's overbearing, and there's nothing you can do. He says, you know what you need? You need to buy of me. Buy of me the clothing that I, what kind of clothing does he give? He gives righteousness. They're apparently without righteousness. And he's saying, you need the righteousness of Christ that comes by salvation. Buy of me the garments that you need. Then he says, eye salve, another way of saying it. What is the eye salve? Well, the eye salve would give sight. And what he's saying is, you're blind. He uses the very words, you are blind. You're naked. You're poor. Well, why are we blind? Because we can't see our own condition. We can't see the grace of God. We need our eyes to be opened. What is that? He opens the eyes of the unbelieving that they might believe. That is, they might trust. I think he's talking of salvation here. And then he ends the text with one of which, a very familiar verse to most of us. Verses 19 through 21. I'll describe it like this. The consequences of lukewarm complacency are enormous, including the for, uh, forfeiture of the loving discipline of Jesus, the privilege of dining with Jesus, and the opportunity to rule with Jesus. Now, a lot is at stake here. Let's look at those three. First, to forfeit the loving discipline of Jesus, verse 19. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. What he's saying is there is a great benefit that you get if you're mine. You don't want to forfeit this. And that is that you would have me disciplining you and you would have me rebuking you. Because if you don't repent and become zealous, I'm not going to discipline you and I'm not going to rebuke you. I'm just going to withdraw. There's a common belief today that God is punishing his children for their wrongdoing. That is wrong. God never will punish his people who are his. Never. 
The word discipline here is the word to teach or instruct. It's not a a word that says this is punishment. No. What he's doing is saying, I want you to repent. And the only way you repent is if you have me working in you to discipline you, to show you where you're wrong, to rebuke you through other people or through my word, I'm going to show you where you're wrong. And you want that because the greatest blessing that you and I can know is to have our God loving us enough to discipline us or to rebuke us. One of the great um, fathers of the faith, Jerome, he said, you know, the greatest danger of all is to see the anger of God removed. Now, that cuts across the grain of a lot of what contemporary theologians, even many of which in my camp would be saying. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Not only does God not punish, God is never angry. Maybe they're right. I don't agree. I think David was a great follower. Don't we believe in old new covenant, same everlasting covenant, love relationship? It's always through Jesus, either looking to the Messiah, looking back to Jesus. We're on the same terms, old and new. And here's God getting so angry with David when he wouldn't circumcise his two boys because he had a wife who was a Midianite, I think it was, and she didn't want anything to do with it. And he's cowering to her instead of following the Lord, and the Lord nearly struck him dead. And what did she do? She says, oh, my goodness, the anger of God's going to take my husband's life. And so she has her boy circumcised and says, go, okay, okay, okay. And it says the anger of God was withdrawn. Anger, not a punishment, not for God's redeemed, but anger, yes, because of love. Tell me, parents, do you ever get angry at your children and say, it's good that I did? Sure. Unless you're saying, I have no love in what I'm doing. But often we do what we do because we're loved. That was a good illustration. I had a, uh, a couple in this church years and years ago. And they became dear friends to us, very dear friends. Uh, their children were older than our children, babysat for our kids from time to time. And we love this one daughter. And she came to the age that she got engaged to be married. Her parents came to me and said, this is not good. This man is not right. They're not ready. It is inappropriate. You know, they're going to come to you, but please, please, please talk them out of their marriage. So, well, I listen and, you know, I hear you're, that's important enough, just what you say as parents, but let me meet the couple. So I, I met the fiance with her and, oh boy, you're talking about not ready, not right inappropriate, bad, I went, oh, no, 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 please don't get married. I did everything I could to talk them out of getting married. They said, we love each other. We get married. Next thing I know, dad comes to me and he said, they're going to do it anyway. I want to keep them, you know, in the love relationship with the family. And so I'm going to ask you if you would, uh, if you go ahead and perform the ceremony, even though I'm against it and I know you're against it, but go ahead and perform the ceremony. I said, I can't do that. They're not, they're not biblically qualified. They they, I can't do that. I'm not allowed. I just can't put my, my stamp. I can't do that. I'm sorry. He was so upset with me. They left the church. They literally left the church. I'll never forget. He said, I will guarantee you with all the weddings you've done, you've married people that are in just as bad a situation as this couple is going into their marriage, and you've married them. You can marry my daughter. 
And I looked at him and I, I said, you know, there's a difference between all of these others and your daughter. And the difference is I love your daughter too much. If I didn't love her, it wouldn't bother me. But I love her too much. Sometimes the very love of our God is seen to be other than what it really is. It is the love of God. That's why he disciplines. That's why he reproves. He wants to see us repent. He wants to see us to be zealous. He wants to see us next be able to dine with him. Look at verse 20. This is the familiar one to so many of us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, in the Mideast and Eastern tradition, dinners can be far more important than we know in the Western world. Far more important. I've been at places in the Eastern world particularly where, where uh, I've been told before the dinner, by the way, do you know the one who's providing your dinner tonight, this will be at least a day or two different. This is going to be at least a day's income to provide this one meal for you. Or maybe this is going to be a week's income. And my first response is say, hey, I'm not that hungry. Trust me, I'm good. Let's just, you know, don't they, have, uh, don't they have McDonald's here or something, you know? I don't mind. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't even suggest that. This is important to them. This is the fellowship they long for. Mm. We don't think of it near the same. It's an, it's an all-evening event. It just goes forever and ever. It's, a, it's for dining. It's for fellowship. And he's saying... You folks, I want to fellowship with you. I want you in my, my living room with me. Let's do it. Now, interesting. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice. You want to talk about sovereign grace? This is what we would call regenerative work of God. When he is knocking and we hear his voice. We don't hear without the voice. We don't know he's there without the knock. There's his sovereign grace. On the other hand, look for conversion here. He who hears my voice and opens the door. There's conversion. There's the work of human responsibility. Sovereign grace, human responsibility, they go hand in hand. People have said of this verse, so many people, oh, good, good theologians, they, they say, oh, oh, can't use that verse to help people come to know Jesus. This is not right to use this verse. And my question would be, why not? Well, because this is the Holy Spirit being invited to fill someone's life who's already a Christian. I say, oh, is it the Holy Spirit? Well, interesting that the author, didn't it say very clearly it's Jesus who's saying this? Hmm. Well, at least I can say this. It's written to the church. It's not written to individuals. And so to use this for an individual is not appropriate. I said, well, wait, why does it say if anyone hears my voice? Hmm. Or they say, oh, well, it's written to the church, and therefore it's not written to non-Christians. I say, it's written to people who are lukewarm. So here's the question. Are they Christians or are they not? That's the question we started with. There's a third statement in verse 21. 
has to do with forfeiting the opportunity to rule or reign with Jesus. Here's what it says, 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So here's the question, when does this happen? We know it's figurative, even as in Romans 5, we are dead in Christ. I mean, we physically died. We're raised up with Christ. Doesn't mean that we physically just started floating. No, we're in a new position of life once he comes into our hearts. Oh, okay. Well, what about reigning with him, sitting on his throne? Doesn't need to be a physical throne. It's talking about the position we hold that we rule with him. We reign with him. That's the ultimate, to reign, to be supreme. You want to win the tournament. You want to win the this. You want to win. You want to reign. We're the reigning champions. Oh, everybody strives for that. It's the best of all positions. He says, well, you'll reign with me. I'm Jesus, and you will reign with me. When? I'm going to suggest to you right now, as Christians, we get to reign with him. That reign will be perfected as we come into the heavenlies and reign with him forever. Listen to this verse in Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. They, huh? Talking about Christians. And judgment was given to them. Aren't we to judge one day with God, the Scriptures say? And I saw the souls. These are people who have died. Of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, you're going to hear people, the majority now, are saying a thousand years. As Jesus comes back, there's going to be a thousand years. I hope you don't believe it just because people are saying it. Because far more people through the history of the church have said otherwise than what we're hearing very popularly today. Literally, very recently, been teaching this. I suggest the thousand years is from the death of Jesus till he comes back. Just as a thousand, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's not, well, there are a thousand out there. I wonder which one, I wonder if those cattle are God or not. I don't know. Just got a thousand. Maybe that's one of them. I don't know. It's an exact, very large number. We don't know the number. It's so massive, but, but it's exact. God knows. And it'll be complete when it's complete. I suggest it's right now. We're reigning with Christ. Folks, we don't have to wait to a thousand years after Jesus dies for that thousand years that follows. No, we reign with him now. That's, the mean, that, that's what overcomers get to do. And we are overcomers, it says in this book. Why do we teach these two chapters? We want to get into chapters four and five that are coming, you know, the week before Easter and the week of Easter and they're going to be glorious because they're going to show us what this, what this whole section of the Bible called Revelation is about. Everything is going to be all right. And once we begin to understand chapters 6 through 11, as I said last week, oh, the tsunami, the earthquake, I've always, why would God, now I get that. Okay, now it begins to make sense. Why does, oh, over here I see, mm, now I begin to see. It's part of a plan. This thing isn't a surprise. This isn't something that's out of God's control. No, God's got a plan, and everything works together. Everything to be all right. 
And why does he give these seven epistles over and over? Why does he say it? Do this, don't do that. Here you are, here's your condition. He says, Christians of all ages, you can relate. We're all the same. And we've got to fight. If we don't fight, we lose. We can't just, oh, everything's okay. I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm okay. Yeah, I don't do that, but I'm okay. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do that. That's okay, but I am his. And he says, no, you better get in there and you better fight it out because this is what life is. You're in a war and you win the war. And if you know you win the war, you fight hard. If you think you're going to lose, you bail out and say, why fight? I'm losing anyway. That's what this is all about. So we can now get the glorious news that comes in chapters 4 and 5. By the way, I'm going to take four weeks after that. And I'm going to give you the whole book of Revelation let you understand. Here's how it makes sense. I'll give you some resources, some tools that I've put together that are going to just absolutely make it so much easier than you could ever imagine. You hang through this series. But now we come to the closure. He says in that last verse, he says, as he says, every church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we conclude asking the question, what do you think? Do you think the lukewarm here are talking about Christians? Or do you think they're talking about non-believers? I know what I want to believe, and I know what you want to believe, but what do you think the text is saying? I don't know. I think he's talking to a people who are not his, who think they are. A church comprised of so many, he says, this is your condition as a church. You don't get it. Does that mean that anybody who is struggling and watch their spiritual condition now as a four, five, or six, or for that matter, one, two, or three, are not Christians? No. We know that Christians can get in a mess. We know we can struggle and we can look at ourselves and say, what's going on and what's happening and how come and whatever. But you know, those that are really his in that condition, they hate it. The thing about this particular book, here's a people that were complacent as it described them. Oh, they're good. Everything's all right. And they feel good and so forth and so on. He says, but you don't even know that you're wretched. I, you know, you, you make the call. It's God's word to you as much as it is to me. And I think there are people you can't tell whether they're Christians and I can't tell whether I am if I'm in a lukewarm position. But I do believe this with all my heart. I think we've taken a bar that Jesus has set. Hard to tell exactly where, but you can tell he set it high. We did a series on the Beatitudes. There was no way to get around that he's holding that bar high. And he says, this is what it means to be my follower. The gate is narrow, small. The way is narrow. There are few that are on it. Enter this way because. And then he goes on and on. Throughout Scripture, he raises it so high. This I am convinced of. I'll guarantee you this is right. The church today has pushed that bar down so low that just about anybody can get over. And if they say they're over, then they're over. If they had an experience that said, hmm, that looked like an over-experience, then that's good enough. It doesn't matter your deeds. It doesn't matter how you live, whether you're cold, whether you're lukewarm, as long as we've pushed this bar way too low. I'm just saying, Christian, let's raise it up where it's supposed to be. You figure out what God's saying. But don't take it for granted when you're lukewarm that at least I'm not cold because Jesus says, uh-uh. 
it may indicate a condition of not even being his. And that's the worst condition of all. Examine your hearts, Paul says. Make sure you're the household of faith. How do you get it? He says, buy from me. That's how you get it. Just buy from me. Well, boy, how do I buy it from him? Once we recognize how we really are spiritually, we're bankrupt, right? We're bankrupt morally. We stand naked. before. How do I buy something without money? Without And the answer given to us very clear, last text, Isaiah 55, 1, 6, and 7. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's the very point. If you're five, four, six, a little lukewarm, are you a Christian? I don't know. You don't know. The point is, whether we are or we aren't, we go to the cross. If we aren't, we find the pardon of our sin forever. If we are, we find the fellowship from the confession of our sin already pardoned. And it's going to the cross and looking at what he's done on our behalf. It's not what we do in our self-righteousness. It's what he has done. And he says, then, this is what I'll do. You come to the cross, and what I will give you will be riches untold, garments of righteousness to clothe you, sight to see your own sin, and to see God's grace. And what's going to happen to you is you're going to repent. And what you're going to do, you're going to become zealous. That's how you know your mind. My people Don't forget, though, everything for the Christian is going to be all right. Let's pray together. Father, hard text, not one we would choose to, to share. So many of us here, our God, would, would say, I, I don't go to people and confront them where they are because it's uncomfortable. We relate to being the one approached, and we don't like the discomfort of being disciplined or reproved and rebuked but father we want to say thank you because you do that to us and some of us have declared ourselves somewhat lukewarm no one else has called us that we called ourselves that and we've not wanted you to interfere with our pleasure and our business and our sexuality and other things we just we just don't want that forgive us May we see the love of our Jesus by the cross that he bore. And may it cause us to run, to run right now to your loving arms. Thank you that we can come and we can be pardoned. We thank you in the great name of our Savior. Amen.